Welcome to the Her Voice Podcast. I'm Dr. Somi Javade, founder and CEO of HerMD. We're a female-forward wellness center committed to empowering women through comprehensive health, beauty, and wellness services. Today, I'm joined by Sandra Pelletier, founder and CEO of EvaFem Biosciences. In 2018, Sandra was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer in the midst of a phase 3 clinical trial of what is now known as Fexi, a non-hormonal contraceptive gel for women. She embarked on aggressive treatment for her cancer, all the while never taking a leave of absence. Thanks for joining us today, Sandra, and for sharing your story about how you beat breast cancer while running your company. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate you actually sharing your story. When I first heard about you and your story, the first thing I thought is I have to meet this woman because I thought it was so inspiring. And so I really appreciate you being so candid at bringing a lot of these topics to the forefront. So thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that. So back in July of 2018, you learned that you had stage three breast cancer while your company, EvaFem Biosciences, was in the midst of a phase three clinical trial of what we now know as Fexi, a non-hormonal contraceptive gel for women. Can you tell us about your diagnosis, the phone call from your doctor, and what was happening at that moment? So for me, I did not have family history of cancer. I had a clean mammogram, a clear mammogram the year before. Now, historically, I have fibrocystic breasts. So always there were some irregularities, but nothing to be concerned about. And so when I went in to, to have you know this final test and diagnosis, it was completely unworried. I thought it was more of the same. And when I got the call, it was so shocking that I honestly and literally said, and I said this once before and joked, and I think people thought I was kidding, but I wasn't. I said, look, I know that you're very busy and there are moments of time when you mix up patient charts this has got to be one of those times. There is no way that I have late stage cancer. There's just, there's just no way. And honestly, she said, that kind of denial is going to kill you. And you have got to regroup. And immediately I had this unbelievable, overwhelming sense. Like my whole body became warm. And all I thought was, it was like that fight or flight. It was that moment of, oh my God, this is going to be yet again, another biggest fight of my life. And why I say that is that when I took over EvoFem, the company was in shambles. And I really mean that, shambles. It was run by an all-male board with all-male executives who, I'm going to be candid, cared much more about women just being willing to have sex with men than they really cared about empowering women with non-hormonal contraception. And I, every day being the CEO of this company has been like pushing the rock uphill. Every day I get up, I put on my helmet and my armor and I say, I'm going into fight again. But when you get diagnosed like this, you think to yourself, are you kidding me? I mean, are you kidding me? I thought, I must have pillaged villages in my last life. I don't know what I did or what I was, but it had to have been bad because why the hell is this happening to me? So I was so scared and so shocked and I was so mad because I thought, why does one person have to handle all of this? Like, this is too much. It's too much. This is too much. And so, and I was a single parent of a boy. You know, there's that old statement my mother used to say, I was brought up very religious, that you're never given more than you can handle. And I thought to myself, 
this is too much now. This is a bridge too far. Like white flag, Maya Copa, enough, enough. So it was a very dark day. A very, very, it, it was such a bad day. And I remember it like it was yesterday. You bring up so many things that both my patients share with me about, they describe not being able to hear anything after they heard the word cancer, like everything becomes fuzzy in their peripheral vision. They describe it like you did, this physical response, this overwhelming emotional response. Some of them describe themselves as being frozen. And, and, and then, of course, the, no way, you're wrong. Like, that can't be me. And I think for you, in the midst of, and you mentioned so many things, getting the cancer diagnosis, being in the midst of this, you know, clinical trial with the FDA, taking on a company that was mostly led by men. And we all know that barrier as women in this space is that women outnumber men like three to one in the healthcare industry, but not when it comes to executive decisions or executive roles and making decisions about our body. And, you know, I've done FDA consulting and they, they don't quite understand yet what we need. And so it's great that we have a woman like you who's in that executive leadership role, but then you have to take a minute, right? Because you're probably going a hundred miles an hour. You're yes. single mom. You're trying to get this company from what you describe as shambles to where you want it to be and where yes. it honestly needs to be for women, right? Yes. yes. And so I too, when I started her MD, you you have this incredulous responsibility of delivering the healthcare that we need as women, right? But then you have to take a minute and you must've been like, wait, I don't, aside from all this, I don't have time for this, right? Did that go through your head as well? Seriously, like I, I don't have time to go through treatment and have surgeries. And I would honest to goodness in my mind, I'm like, we have to get this drug approved. We have to get it launched. We have to hire a sales team. I have to raise money. And I, honest to God, it was like all of these things going through my mind and thinking, I don't have time to deal with cancer. I just don't have time to deal with cancer. And it was such a, you're right. That's what made me so angry is it was like, look, the timing could not be worse. It could not be worse. And when you talked about your patients, it just resonates with me where it was like that. When you see those movies where everything's in slow motion, you know, and you hear that noise like, wow. And I was just sitting there going, Yeah, it's almost like you do get frozen in time and you just have all you can do to get beyond that moment. So for you to really recognize what's happening so that you can go forward. And I kept thinking, who am I going to call? What am I going to say? Don't be irrational. Don't. This is the wrong time to tell too many people too quickly. Right. Calm down. Take a beat. Figure out your plan, because once you tell people about this, it's going to get ugly. That's what I kept thinking. It's going to get ugly. And the other thing I thought of, by the way, was nobody's going to believe you that you can, I really thought no one's going to believe you that you can handle this on top of where the company is, on top of being a single mother. They're going to believe that you're too weak, that this is finally the straw that broke the camel's back. And honestly, I will be candid. I've never told anybody this. I thought, oh, all my haters, all my male competitors, they're going to be so happy and I'm not going to let them win. Cancer is not going to beat me. And then in a funny note, I thought, oh my God, my son's dad. Now, now he has a partner that I approve of, that I have signed off on, but before her, I was like, oh my God, my son's going to be raised by an unapproved partner. 
I was losing my mind for like 15 minutes and ready. And I was sweating. I was literally sweating in my car. It was just craziness. All of the responsibility and the, the people that would be impacted by cancer. I love your candor. I love your excitement and passion talking about it. I want to know, looking back now, were there symptoms? Was something going on that you were like, hmm, I just should have paid attention to that, but I was so focused on work and raising my, my child, or were you really asymptomatic? I would say two things. I will talk out of both sides of my mouth on purpose. So I was having some issues but nothing that I logically thought would relate to breast cancer. So for example, I had an endometrial ablation after I gave birth to my son because I had always had incredibly heavy bleeding. I mean, terrible periods, which caused me to take a 150 dose of contraception for years and years and years. After the ablation, I didn't have a period for years, years and years and years. Then all of a sudden, I started having vaginal bleeding out of the clear blue for no reason. Now, it wasn't heavy bleeding, but it was unexpected. And for some bizarre reason, I just dealt with it. It was like, you know, women have fluid and vaginal discharge. And I certainly didn't think that that would be anything that would be related to anything more serious. And so I thought, well, maybe those procedures don't last for a lifetime. Maybe I need to go in and have a little, you know, touch up. I really imagine this. I've been in women's health my whole life. I actually thought this, okay? Like it was like a car. Maybe I need to go in, you know, have my oil changed. But I can get to that later because I'm very busy right now. So the only thing was that it was strange. But that was the reason that led me to go in and have a full exam. And that's when my GYN said to me, you know what? Let's just do everything early. You're not ready for your mammogram for four months. Let's just do everything. And by the way, it was my OBGYN that I believe saved my life. Okay, not my oncologist. Now imagine if I would have never said, oh, let's go have a mammogram. I would have never said, hey, I wanted to get in and out of there so fast, right? And I can remember, right? I was like, Dr. Zaid, um, can we like speed this up? Like, you don't need to talk to me. I don't care if your hands are cold. Let's just move it along. And she started laughing and she's like, Sandra, seriously. And like, you know, and I just loved her as a human because she caught me. And then she said to me, look, there's something happening with you and we need to do a full evaluation. We're going to do everything. We're going to do it. It's right. We need to do it. And she said to me, you owe it to yourself. A lot of people rely on you, including yourself. It's exactly what she said to me. A lot of people rely on you, including yourself. So we're going to do everything. And honestly, that is the reason I found out I had cancer. And I, it was 100% her. And I will be grateful to her for the rest of my life because now I'm a cancer conqueror. But yeah, it was my OBGYN who insisted I do all of it. You know, we all know being in the medical world, the delay in diagnosis for female conditions is sometimes eight and a half years. We sometimes have to go to the doctor three times for every one time our male counterpart has to go. So from the time you walked into the doctor's office to your diagnosis, what was it? It sounds like everyone was on top of it. What, what, how long was the period until you got the call about the biopsy? 90 days. But I agree with your point, by the way. I, I do think there's extraordinary delays, extraordinary delays. And the one thing that I learned 
being in the healthcare field, right, is to be a deliberate advocate for yourself, that you have to be, right? Because everybody has so many other things in their lives. You know what I mean? There's millions of patients that go into these offices every day. And so once she convinced me I needed to make sure to practice what I preach, put myself on my own to-do list right? and stop being so foolish. You know, when she said a lot of people rely on you, including yourself, it almost made me feel embarrassed. Like, oh my goodness, she's so right. So that's why I really pushed it. You know what I mean? Like, is there a cancellation? Can I get in? I've got to get in faster for my mammogram because normally it would have taken longer, by the way. But I said, you know, any cancellation, I'll change my schedule. But because I was willing to do that, and, you know, stop at the drop of a dime and go in, it was quicker. So what was it like talking to your loved ones, your colleagues, your friends about your diagnosis when you finally made the decision to start sharing what was happening with you? It was two very specific but extremely different reactions. So half of the people acted like breast cancer was no big deal. No one dies of breast cancer. This is what they said, their narrative. No one dies of breast cancer anymore. Oh, well, you're going to be able to beat this. These same people said, well, it's not ovarian cancer. So you know what? This is beatable. And this is not a great thing we know, but this is something that you can beat, which I found shocking. Okay, so that was one set of reaction. And then the extreme opposite reaction, for example, if people like my mother, profound devastation. They believe that, you know, cancer is the beginning of a demise. That even if you beat it, you will never be the same again. You will never be the same physically, mentally, emotionally, that the change that will happen is a negative change. So one of two reactions. And so many, you know, I practice so much survivorship, which is taking care in my role, specifically gynecologic and sexual health care needs of women who've been through all types of cancers and helping them address with the bodily changes, the hormonal changes, the sexual changes. And one of the number one things they say to me is even though they identify as a cancer warrior or survivor, is that they themselves don't want to be seen that way. They don't want to be just seen because of their cancer diagnosis, right? And they don't want others to see them that way. And some of them, you said, it's not the first thing they want me to mention when they walk into the room. They're like, you know, I'm like, how has it going? What's going on with your oncologist? They're like, talk to me about something else. Talk to me about my kids. Talk to me about travel. Don't let that be the first thing that you see as my provider too, because they tell me I'm still me, Dr. DeVade. And I get it. And I, I love the fact that they tell me that and they correct me. Um, and I'm like, thank you for keeping me on my toes and making me cognizant of that. Cause that makes me a better listener and provider and advocate for you. And I get it. If, if I went through the same thing, I wouldn't want, I want people to still see me as so me, right. And the woman that I am not yes. just a cancer patient, right. That's awesome. Yes. That's all, by the way, it's awesome that they say it, but it's more awesome too, that you accept it. I mean, really, that you accept it and say, okay, that's great. I get it. I mean, that's so important. I get it. And so you talked about some of this initially when you talk about the day, like all the things that went through your mind, but what were your worries because you were in this clinical trial with the FDA, with this very important new treatment option for women. So what were your specific worries as you were navigating this? 
So my first specific worry was, will my board of directors, thinking they're being benevolent, say to me, you must take all your energy and focus and get well. You have to take a medical leave of absence. And they would ask me, fiduciary responsibilities of the company, right? They would ask me to step aside and have someone else fill in until my treatment was done. That was my number one worry. My number two worry was, how am I, if that doesn't happen, how am I going to convince them that I should stay in my role and how am I going to actually raise the money that we need while I'm in treatment? How am I going to keep the company together from a corporate culture standpoint? Because I care about the corporate culture of the company in a way that I believe male CEOs typically don't. I admit that I am a fierce mother. I tell them what they don't want to hear with love. I tell them what they do want to hear with love and they take it, right? They take it. I say things that I'm not sure men could get away with, but it's important and it needs to be said. And they know that I care about them in a way that is game changing, but sometimes they know they better smarten up, right? They're going to be in a timeout and it's not going to be fun. And so I was very worried that people would address me as a vulnerable person, as a weak person, as a sick person, and I would lose respect for pity. And I did not want to be pitied. I didn't want to be pitied. And so I was I was nervous about that and, and significantly worried about telling my board, really worried. And I think for a person like you and a person like myself who's used to going a million miles a minute, I think sometimes people who are trying to protect you or help by taking away purpose is not great because uh, a lot of patients will share with me, thank God I was still working or thank God I was still volunteering because it gave me something to focus on other than the chemo or the radiation or the surgery. And they actually welcomed it. And they said that they felt more tired on the days where they didn't have an agenda. So did you feel the same way? You know, it is so refreshing to hear this information because I felt exactly the same way. Exactly. It felt like one of the things that I live for, that I get up for, is trying to create an opportunity to empower women. And I thought, why are you going to take that from me? I'd rather die. I would rather die right now, you know? And and luckily, the board knew that. But I will tell you that the, the wonderful positive distraction of work was so important. After my double mastectomy, I can remember being in my hospital room with my laptop and my cell phone. I set up a command center and I had the, you know, I had my food trays out with everything, with my laptop and I had my phone and I had the whole thing, swear to God. And it was so wonderful that I be distracted. You know, you, you, there's so many things you could be distracted by your pain or your worry or your fear and what's happened. And instead I got right back into the throes of work, which was so great because I would joke with them and say, listen, I'm in a hospital room. You've got divided attention. This is amazing. Right. We don't have people knocking on my door and coming in and slipping me notes and 20. And so I felt like it was amazing. I had this like, it's almost like what you do when you're on an airplane, right? Nobody can get you. You have this focused time to do work without interruption. There was a point when I actually thought, honest to goodness, said to the nurse, I'm like, 
look, being in this hospital has been the best thing that ever happened for my work because it's like, you know, nobody can get in, nobody can come, you know, and interrupt me. And she said to me, she goes, you're a very strange woman. (laughs) You know what though? That just shows that when you are able to align work with being a mission driven company, Yes. How that makes you feel so differently about working. If you hated your job, you'd be like, close your laptop. Don't bother me. I'm sick right now. But the fact that you have such mission and passion, and that's what I tell my kids, is that if you find a job or a passion or calling that you love, it doesn't feel like work, right? It's it's yes. what you were meant to do. So it's you right. touched you touched upon surgery. And so I did want to talk to you about that. So how young were you when you got your diagnosis? I was 48. And then uh, this is a second part question. So you went down a pretty aggressive treatment regimen, which included chemo, a double mastectomy, a hysterectomy and an oophorectomy, which is removal of the ovaries. Why did you make that decision? I'm assuming there was genetic testing involved. Yes, there was genetic testing involved. Um, However, interestingly, so I had ductile cancer. So most of the breast cancer is lobular. And my oncologist said that my form of cancer was very aggressive and that they, although it wasn't in my lymph node, that they were worried about metastasis. And so it was very, very interesting. I did have a choice. I could have done chemo first and then had surgery or vice versa. And I did a lot. So I got three different opinions from three different oncologists and three different surgeons at three different medical institutions. The reason when I when I ended up at UCSD in the Coleman Cancer Center is In the end, what I found was two things. One, I had a woman oncologist and a woman surgeon. And after doing diligence, I went online and listened to all of these women. So I started listening to stories about women who had mastectomies, but they didn't have a surgeon that was aggressive enough. And they didn't take tissue all the way down to the breast bone. And metastases occurred because there was still tissue left. Or women who had a, they didn't have a double mastectomy, but instead they had, you know, a bilateral and the cancer came back in the other breast. Then I also met a lot of women, by the way, I met a lot of women who just had a lumpectomy. And they said that if they could do it all over again, that when their cancer came back, they felt that a lumpectomy was the right aesthetic decision. It was the wrong life decision. These women said this very boldly. Now, these were women that had had it years before. And so for me, what I knew was this, is that I'd already had a child. I didn't identify with my body by my breasts. I was not going to breastfeed. I I really wanted to kill a fly with a sledgehammer. And I did not want to have reconstruction because I was worried about trying to recover with metal spacers in my chest, then having an implant in my body where you hear all of these things where women have autoimmune disorders, the implants leak. So here's what I thought. Look, I have a lot of other stuff to do and I could care less if I have breasts and if I'm happy, then that should be enough. It should be enough. The interesting part is that my surgeon said to me, so first when I said it, everybody was very concerned at the hospital, by the way, very concerned. And they told me that I was going to be unhappy and that a lot of women identify with their femininity, with their breasts. They gave me a lot of psychological discussion. 
And I was very polite. And in the end, I said, listen, what do I have to do to help you understand it's not happening? You're not talking me into this. Okay, that's not going to happen. So you're wasting my time and your time. Can we stop this dialogue? So finally, I sat down with the surgeon and she said to me, okay, fine. I see you are not doing reconstruction. You're not having implants. And she said, why don't I do a transgender surgery on you? And at first I said, oh, what does that mean exactly? And she said, well, what I can do is put your own nipples back on your chest. I'll remove your nipples. I'll do the surgery and I'll put them back on. And I said, I am in. I would like a transgender surgery, which by the way, I love saying and really. And so, but as an aside note, Naked, I look like Edward Scissorhands. I do. I have serious scars. I do. And I joked with her and I said to her after the surgery, I said, are you sure that these are my nipples? And she said, what do you think? I have a bag of nipples. You think I walk around with my nipple bag and I just pop them out of my bag and put them on people? I said, I don't know. They just don't look that great. And she said, hey, I just amputated your breasts. You know, put your nipples back on. So she was very funny, which I liked. But but that's what I did. I did not have reconstruction. I had my own nipples back on and it was the right decision for me. I would never change that decision. It was because psychologically, psychologically, I needed to know that I killed the fly with a sledgehammer. I needed to know it because I have too much to live for and I don't have any time left to deal with cancer again. And I needed to know I did everything I could to stop it. You know, as a physician, I hear both sides, right? And so I have a lot of women who do identify um, with their breasts as their femininity, and then they also struggle sexually, aside from all the other stuff we're going to get into about, you know, pain and dryness and decreased libido, but just not being able to look at themselves the same way. And then their concern is their partner is not going to look at them the same way. So my question to you is, obviously, you did not have any problems with your identity, and I get where you're coming from. Fly with a sledgehammer, I love that metaphor. Like you were like, nope, I'm not leaving any tissue. I want to be done. But did you have any fear or anxiety about, you know, you talk about all of these scars that you have, these multiple surgeries that you had. Did you have any medical fears or anxiety, even if it wasn't about uh, identity or body image? Yes. Yes, I will tell you this, but I've never told anyone. I have never told anyone this until this moment. Post all these surgeries, I I started to feel that I wasn't feminine at all and that I didn't identify as a woman and I didn't identify as a man, that I was hybrid. And I didn't feel anything. I felt like my body was a vehicle that my soul was in but I really, I did not feel feminine or attractive. I didn't necessarily feel unattractive, but I literally felt numb. I felt nothing. I didn't, and I stopped looking in the mirror. I did not look at myself naked at all, ever. And I have a mirror in my bathroom, a long one that I covered because you'd have to look at it when you get in the shower. And I said, you know what? This just is what it is. But after a few months, I intelligently decided that's probably not good psychologically for me to continue to think that I am a hybrid human that has no identification with her body at all. So my oncologist suggested, and I told her, she was the one person I told in private, I haven't told anybody in public. She said, I really think you need to see somebody. I just think that you owe it to yourself to see somebody. This whole identification as this hybrid human 
maybe it's great. And she was very, you know, she's like, maybe it's great. But you should talk to somebody. And so I did. It was probably one of the best things that I could ever do. And I did. And I went to counsel. I went to therapy for six months. And it was game changing for me. It was completely game changing for me. And so, you know, it, it, it helped me reconnect with who I am as a woman and that I could get behind my decision and my choice to not have breath, to be flat and fierce, but I was still very much a woman. And I was just a woman who has now evolved into something different and somebody different physically and mentally and emotionally. And it was about growth and that I didn't have to stop in time. And she said to me, you're choosing arrested development. That's what you're choosing. That is not growth. Arrested development is not growth. And I needed to hear that because she was like, look, you're not going to be able to evolve. And so it was a wonderful, important thing. But yes, I had a very hard time. I had a very hard time getting back to, you know, loving myself in the right way. I love the flat and fierce. I'm going to use that with patience. The other thing that I wanted to touch on is, you know, ASCO. I'm actually married to a medical oncologist. And so I have seen this transition at their meetings and in their clinical memorandums that they have put out. So ASCO is the American Society of Clinical Oncology. And they have finally said, we have to address sexual dysfunction. We have to address menopause. And they talk about counseling and therapy and getting partner involved if the patient desires, right? And is comfortable addressing things like low libido and painful sex. And so it was very, very awe-inspiring when they finally addressed it because, you know, my husband will share with me and when I reviewed the literature, I get it. They have a very specific job. It's to kill and conquer cancer and to give patients the longest disease-free intervals, because that's how they talk. They're very evidence-based and they do amazing work. But, you know, telling a patient that you're going to live is not good enough. We have to address quality of life. We, we have to, right? And so my question to you is, if you were in a relationship at the time, because so many patients share with me how they feel alone or isolated, or sometimes they describe themselves as broken. You chose Edward Scissorhands, which I will never forget now. But if you were in a relationship, was it affected and how how was it affected? I was in a relationship. Um, I had been in a relationship for five years. I am no longer in that relationship. And it was affected negatively and dramatically. And I don't know that I would fully blame cancer, but that was a significant reason. It it was the demise of the relationship, no question. In my mind, no question in my mind. And it was the demise of the relationship because I changed, the relationship dynamic changed, and fairly or unfairly, I wanted certain things from my partner, certain kinds of support in certain ways that Either I didn't communicate or my partner wasn't capable of giving. And in the end, once I was well, it was one of those moments where if I had to ever go through it again, I didn't have the right partnership dynamic for it to, to, be, to be good for me. And, and truthfully, I, I feel that relationship had a lot of physical chemistry. Well, then when you go from thinking that you are a hybrid person like Edward Scissorhands, the physical chemistry is very, very different because I 
certainly didn't want to be nude. I certainly did not want to have sexual intimacy. And then when we did try to have sexual intimacy, the pain was significant, serious vaginal pain. And I did and still do have a lot of vaginal dryness because I take an anti-estrogen pill every day for 10 years. And I had a lot of body pain. And this is an aside that I don't want to go down a rabbit hole. But once I told my doctor about the serious body pain, the aches that I had, she said to me, you know, look, I'm not suggesting this for depression. I'm suggesting it for body pain. And I started taking Cymbalta. And Cymbalta absolutely changed. It, it was, it was for me, for me, it was game changing. So my, my body pain dissipated after about four months of, of using Cymbalta. And so, and I only, I do the 30 milligrams, but the bottom line is, is that my relationship ended in cancer, I would say was 90% of the, the reason, no question. And that makes me so sad because so many patients do share that. And you touched on a couple of things that I want to, what I want to comment on. So the first is how you said that the, that your partner was not the correct partner. And in medical data, it is described as caregiver fatigue, right? They get exhausted because they're trying to be the support person and they're asked to step up in, in ways that they hadn't before, right? You talked about how it was a very physical relationship and how there was chemistry and all of a sudden your body changed. But the other thing that also changed are your hormones. All of a sudden, you know, you're perimenopausal or premenopausal at 48, average is 51, so you have all these physical changes and then your ovaries were removed. And that's where women produce 90% of their estrogen and their testosterone, right? Which is responsible for sexual function. And so you have all of these changes going on along with this life-altering diagnosis in the midst of managing this company and being a single mom. So of course the relationship was going to fall by the wayside if you didn't have someone who was extraordinary. And so... I will tell you so many women blame themselves and I'm so glad that you are not because it is the partner and had he been up to the task, he would have still been around. But we hear this all the time and that's why survivorship is so near and dear to me. The other thing that you talked about is this painful sex, which we describe as dyspareunia. And what happens because of the cancer, the treatments, the anti-estrogen that you're taking is that our external and internal genitalia, which is very dependent upon testosterone and estrogen, all of a sudden is devoid of that. And so what happens are we have these beautiful folds in the vagina, which makes the vagina like an accordion so we can stretch and accommodate our partner. The hormones go away so that tissue thins, it flattens. I hate the word atrophy because it sounds awful. But then you can't stretch and accommodate for your partner and you become more like, hey, we're moms, we've done laundry, more like a tube sock, right? So it doesn't stretch. And instead of stretching, it burns, it hurts, it tears. And so sex does become very, very painful, but there are options for patients depending on their receptor status, depending on whether or not their oncologists are okay with localized hormone therapies, which are actually mentioned in the ASCO statement. And then also, you know, CO2 laser, radiofrequency. So I want women to know that they do not have to live with sexual pain. So I want to know, because I'm a crazy busy woman as well, and all of a sudden you had to take this pause for your own health. What was that like letting go of control and allowing other people to step up and try to fill those giant shoes of yours while you had to get treatment? It was horrible. 
<laughs> it was it was it was horrible. It was it was horrible because I say horrible because I I was grateful that people wanted to step up. You know, you have gratitude for that and appreciation. Yet you know that there are certain things that you will do in the way that they need to be done that other people are not going to do in the same way, no matter how much they want to, you know? And, and so what I did learn that was wonderful was to delegate the things that I didn't have to do. There are certain things that I did that I really didn't need to do and I really shouldn't be doing. And not only did I delegate them then, I've delegated them going forward. It's been amazing. I've taken certain things off my plate where I'm like, I don't need to be doing that. That is like, no, someone else can do it. So that was wonderful. But the one thing I will tell you though, and and not to be, you know, too much of a sales pitch on our product sexy, I will say this. When I started experiencing vaginal dryness and the pain with intercourse was so intense, I what was so interesting is we did not develop Fexi for women who are in survivorship of cancer. That's not, you know, we developed it for the 23 million women that won't use hormones. And the oncology nurses, when I would went through chemo, said to me, it's almost like you developed this for patients like yourself. And I said, you have to find a silver lining. The silver lining was Fexi is lubricating, right? Sexual pleasure is enhanced and the lubrication property, it's bioadhesive. It stays inside the vaginal cavity. It feels good. It with no hormones, no hormones. So as an aside, I will tell you, when I was sitting in chemo, I just to, like, I'll never forget this. A woman was done treatment and she was much younger than me. And she was still of reproductive age. She still had her uterus, still had her ovaries. And she was having a conversation with the patient coordinator. And she was saying to the patient coordinator, I don't want to put a copper IUD in, in my body that I can't control. I can't take it out when I want to. It doesn't make sense to me. And she was arguing about the fact because the only option that has no hormones, you know, if you want prescription is a copper IUD. I can remember sitting there thinking, maybe, maybe I'm going to be able to be part of the solution to be able to talk about it. Because by the way, my company and our shareholders and our board said to me before my diagnosis, we are not promoting this for cancer patients. We are not going to talk about that. It's such a small niche. It's a small population. And I can tell you this, when we got done treatment, I said, this is not a conversation and it is not a discussion. You can fire me if you choose to, but we are promoting this for cancer patients. We are screaming from the rooftops. And it was almost like, I was like, look, you're not stopping me. Because this is what is happening. And I said, do you know what it's like after you go through all of this to want to be normal again, right? To want to be intimate again. I wanted my old life back, right? But that's what I wanted. I loved my life before cancer. I wanted it back. And if I had had a partner that was worth a damn that I was still with, I would want to be intimate, but not painful, right? Not painful. So it made me happy. That's what made me happy. That's what still makes me happy, actually, is that, you know, the lubricating, non-hormonal is everything to me, right? It's everything to me now. But but you're right. That intimacy thing is so important. And I, and I know I went off, you know, down a rabbit hole, but I'll go back to your point. Giving up control, it was, it was harder than I thought it would be because I thought I was a more evolved human, you know, that I would take things off my plate. But I've accepted that 
I'm a control freak and I just have to accept it. (laughs) I think that's what makes you successful is, you know, being so invested in every step of the way. And I'm working with an executive coach to help me delegate and to trust my team. And I have let go of a lot and assigned it to other people. And it will not be on my agenda again. Because where I shine is education, advocacy, and patient care. And that's what I want to spend my time you know, doing. And so you touched on some of the next things I wanted to talk about. So when Vexi came into my office, I was literally jumping up and down. I was so excited because you know I have this super specialty in sexual health care and survivorship. And for me, I saw that as a huge patient population because I have skewed numbers of women that come in who are younger, not menopausal, need contraception, don't want to have surgery like a tubal or anything like that, and don't want a copper IUD, especially after everything they've been through. And so when I offer them this, they're like, you're kidding. How come I've never heard of this, Dr. Gervais? This is amazing. And you are right. There is a duality because it feels good. And so it's lubricating as well. And so you have this amazing hormone-free lubricating product that is not, you know, contraindicated in cancer patients. And so I love this for my patients. And I did a couple of talks for survivors and for uh, cancer patients. And literally, they're all like, Dr. Javade, wait, put it in the chat box. What's the name of that medication? I, I need to, you know, because I do them nationally. And they're like, I have to take this to my gynecologist. What what, what do you want? And I was asked this, you know, on the Dave Asprey podcast as well. He's like, what's your favorite, you know, non-hormonal contraception? And he didn't know about it either. And so it's been really, really exciting for me to offer patients another option that works and that feels good. And then my other subset has been women who are negatively impacted by hormonal contraception. I mean, I do use it as a gynecologist. I use it for polycystic ovarian, endometriosis, to control bleed, abnormal bleeding. But some of my patients, because their testosterone levels get negatively impacted, right? Because you have this upregulation in sex hormone binding globulin, which I joke is like Pac-Man and binds up all of our testosterone. And so they come in with menopausal changes, even though they're not menopausal. And they're, they're like, ever since I started my birth control, it sex hurts, or I can't orgasm, or it takes 20 years to orgasm, Dr. Javade, like something's wrong. And I check their testosterone levels and they're undetectable. And so wow. it's like, okay, let's get off the birth control and hear your options. And they're happy to switch over to Fexi then because it's something they control, right? So we've put contraception back in their hands. And it kind of, like I said, it does, it replaces the need for a lubricant. It, it does both. And so patients are coming back with very positive feedback. So it's really nice. And then I should mention too, for pa- women who've had blood clots or things like that, who can't be on hormones, this is also an option for them. So for those of you listening, this, this is a great product if you've experienced any of that. And so I want to know what exciting things are coming up for you personally, and then also for Fexi. I'll start with Fexi and then I'll do. So for Fexi, we are very, very, very excited that in the third quarter, and I know this is sort of a, so we have wonderful social media influencers that are amazing, that really care about the product. We do have some celebrities that are going to be signing on that the team has told me that if I repeat, they will, you know, put a muzzle on me. So I can't say yet because it's supposed to be some timing issue, but we do have some people that, and these are people who just read cue cards. These are people who have had very, very tough and challenging situations with hormonal contraception themselves. And they're passionate about offering choice. 
But the big thing they're passionate about is sex on demand. That a woman can go out like a man has had. Men have had condoms forever. They can go out and have safe sex with a condom in their pocket. Well, women can now do it with a sexy in their pocket, right? So they're excited about that, that fun, pithy, you know, piece of it. Um, but we also are in our phase three study for the prevention of chlamydia and gonorrhea. And I'm very excited about that because one, for the sixth year in a row, the CDC came out last week and said that chlamydia and gonorrhea are on the rise. 1.8 million cases of chlamydia, 600,000 of gonorrhea. What I found staggering is that chlamydia, which I'm sure you know, but is not just sexual, but the most diagnosed and prescribed infectious disease in the United States. And now gonorrhea is antibiotic resistant. So the FDA gave us a fast track review for chlamydia, six months, and five additional years exclusivity on our patent for gonorrhea, which is incredible. And so some investors will say to me, well, why hasn't a big company done this if it was so important? And I said, because most of these big companies are run by men, okay? A billion dollar market opportunity is not that big for some of these big companies. And these studies are complicated. They're hard to run. And you have to have control over it to make sure it's done well and right. So I'm super excited that we will have the only product for the prevention of chlamydia and gonorrhea. So it's very exciting. So that's sort of that evo-femfexy part. Um, the, the meat part is, I will tell you that, so one, my son is going to be 14 in June. I say that hopefully, hopefully, I'm raising a gentleman and a feminist, but um, he, I joke, he's either going to be the president or the head of the mob, but he is, um, he's really very, very, very sweet. And as he's going through puberty, the one thing that I will tell you is that he is, incredibly focused on equality and that girls and boys should have the same opportunity. So in everything that he does, I feel really happy that some of what I know to be true is paying off. Thank goodness, knock on wood. And um, romantically, my mother would tell you, my mother loves the Hallmark Channel, okay? So my mother's whole life, she wants me to have a romance like the Hallmark Channel. But I have reconnected with my high school boyfriend. And I am very excited that it turns out he could be one of the sweetest men on the planet. So sweet. And I've reconnected and he visited over Easter. And it was really great. And the loveliest thing he said to me was, he said, you seem to be... Uh, no, he said, you seem to be insecure because we went to the beach. He said, you seem to be insecure about your bathing suit. And he said, I know that maybe this is a bridge too far, but you know what's really sexy is beating cancer. That's what's really sexy. So he's pretty awesome. And I'm super happy about that. And so, yeah, so it could be a Hallmark movie. You don't know. My mother would be happy if it was. But yeah, my son is also really great. So things are good personally, and things are really good professionally. I love that for you. So Thank you. yeah, Thank got rid you. of the unsupportive significant other, had a old love come back into your life and watching your son grow up. Those are yeah. amazing things. Thank you. The one thing I want to say is that for your listeners, you and I did not discuss this. There was no conversation about it. The one thing I want to say for your listeners is that I wish that all providers were like you. And when I say like you, what I mean is that active listening, empathy, but directness, right? It, it, it's to active listen is important, but to then also listen with a way to under, to meet women where they are at that moment when they see their provider. 
whatever's happening at that moment. And so what I want to say is, is that I was in healthcare. It was in my mindset to continue to look until I found the right match. Sometimes women don't always do that because they're too busy. It's easy. It's in the same building as their pediatrician, whatever reason. The one thing that I want to say is that it changes everything. When you have a provider that sees you and hears you and appropriately, right? I mean, not like, you know, an hour conversation, but when you have a provider that gets it and gets you, it changes everything. It, it really does. Their mindset and how they behave in the chemistry. It would be amazing if people, if we could clone you, which I don't think we're ready for the cloning process yet, but, but I mean that. And I really mean that. I, I mean it wholeheartedly. I mean, I just met you and you, you know, you can just tell, you know, and by the way, you're, you're no kitten, you know, I mean, you're, you're fierce to say, look here. And by the way, you also let women, you know, come to their own conclusions, but you give them the right guidance to get there. So women deserve that. They deserve that. And their healthcare providers, they do. So they should seek it out if they don't have it. I thank you for all those comments. And I also know our listeners will appreciate you saying that as well, because me as a physician, I say it, if your physician's not ready to answer your questions, it's the wrong physician. It's a partnership. It's teamwork. There's things that you have to do. There's things I have to do. And I tell them not to be afraid to ask questions or to advocate for themselves or to keep searching because you're right. It makes all the difference. And I see patients who I'm sometimes their eighth or ninth doctor. And I always tell them when they come in, I'm like, you're so brave because I wonder about all the patients who are still at home or still struggling because they did not have the ability to come forward or they gave up and said, oh, I've been to four doctors. It's, it's just going to be the same. They're all the same. And so I think that is going to give women impetus who are listening to you saying, hey, no, it's okay for me to go to a different doctor. I sometimes have patients who are so loyal and be like, I feel so guilty being here. I'm cheating on my doctor. I'm like, you're allowed to. This is your health. You have that right. And in fact, if you want to go back to the doctor, because this is a second opinion, I'm not going to be upset or hurt. You, you, right. this is information gathering. You're allowed to do that. It's encouraged. I said, a good doctor will never get upset with you for getting a second opinion. They never will. That's right. Um, so it's been a joy. I'm glad I, I got to hear your story and I met all of your team. And so to meet you today, I think your bravery and your courage sharing all of this is going to make such an impact on the women who are going to listen to this and just the women who meet you day to day. So I'm thank so excited for what you guys are doing in this healthcare space. So I thank you for that. Thank you, Beth. And thank you for having me. It was really an absolute pleasure. Thank you again. In this episode, we touched on abnormal uterine bleeding, which many, many women struggle with. It is imperative that a woman struggles with abnormal uterine bleeding or atypical menstrual flow. She needs to come in and see her gynecologist to have a workup and understand why this is happening. Fexi is a non-hormonal birth control used before sex to prevent pregnancy. Don't use Fexi if you have problems with your urinary tract or a history of repeated UTIs. Common side effects are vaginal burning, itching, infection, discharge, UTIs, genital area discomfort, bacterial vaginosis, or pain while urinating. Fexi does not protect against STIs. 
This episode of Her Voice has been a production of HerMD, a female forward wellness center in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HerMDHealth and sign up for our newsletter at HerMDHealth.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you'll share it with your friends. They can listen to us on Buzzsprout, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. If you'd like to share your sexual health story, you can reach out to us at info at HerMDHealth.com.